Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. center it sounds very huge and elevated and that's what it feels like like once you're working there because rent is about much more than just friendship love and musical theater it was about something that shook musical theater people are Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 136. I am your host, Michael Gilbo, and we've got a great show lined up for this double episode. In Act 1, we've got Liz Winstead, the co-creator of The Daily Show, stopping by to talk about her new theater piece, Shoot the Messenger. We've also got the new musical, Off-Broadway, West Bank, UK, with a couple songs from that. We have got... The football player turned playwright Bo Eason talking about his show Rent of the Litter. We got the off Broadway show Dogs. Then in Act Two, we have got the interactive experimental musical uh, Flanagan's Wake with a couple of exclusive performances in there. We've also got Scott Allen talking about his new CD Dreaming Wide Awake with performances from Danny Calvert and Katie Thompson right here in our studio. We've got the play No Dice, which is a very different sort of show. So we got a lot of great stuff. Um, I want to preface, we're not doing any specific coverage on the strike. I figure with a you know, bi-weekly program, that's not our place. But I would like to make a statement, and that is I am in support of the producers. I've done my research. I'm not going to go into all the details. I can leave it up to you to look around and find the details. But I will say that I do not believe that the theater producers are all getting rich off the labor of others. I am in favor of everybody getting a good wage and being paid well, but I do not think there's any room in the theater community for feather bedding and paying for people who aren't needed. If that continues to happen and costs continue to soar, I believe that Broadway will turn more into Las Vegas and we will see less shows like Spring Awakening, Avenue Q, Spelling Bee, and such. So I do hope the producers have the guts to stick it out however long is needed to come to a fair agreement that can allow for a financially feasible arrangement to produce Broadway shows. Also, enough of that. That's just my statement. You can research it. Email me at info at if you have any uh, differing opinions on that. Also, if you haven't checked it out at broadwaybullet.com, we've got a brand new web player which features a lot of video extras and such, as well as you can listen to the audio segments there as well. Um, it's been adopted by a lot of Facebook users. It's a Facebook app as well. If you just search Broadway Bullet under Applications, uh, I encourage you to do so. Tell your friends. Share it. Uh, it's, it's a great, fun application. There's a chat built in. Um, spread the word. This is a very viral thing, obviously. Um, we've grown uh, 10 times since uh, I last announced this, so I <laughs> want to thank everybody who has added it and encourage you to add it again and check it out. There is a fair amount of content in there. There's not a lot. I will be taking the season break after next episode to uh, kind of sort out some logistics that we're going to try to work and get a lot more video content available for that player as well. So um, if you find the 
pickings a little slim right now. Hopefully that will really start to grow in the new year. Anyway, with all that out of the way, let's jump right into the program. On the boards. One thing that's great about the New York theater scene is the endless diversity of offerings, including a very hard-to-classify show called Shoot the Messenger, which uh, the creator Liz Winstead is using to bridge the concepts of the TV news parody with a live theater uh, taking place at the Acme Underground Cafe. And joining us is Liz Winstead, who uh, some may recognize as the co-creator of The Daily Show um, among her credits on various other shows and we're so pleased to have her join us here in the studio how are you doing i'm good others may recognize me as that girl they had sex with and then left and never called again (laughs) (laughs) all right (laughs) or the daily show or the daily show either one so um i guess first before we kind of get going because it really is important for defining what the show shoot the messenger is about is uh maybe you could tell us about some of your other uh television writing acting credits you've done a, a lot of stuff over the years it's and... crazy i i um well i i think that i found my niche in satire or just sort of fighting powers that be probably uh when i was like 11 and i wanted to be an altar boy and the catholic church did not allow girls and so i neither got... does the play altar boys <laughs> yes <laughs> interestingly enough Uh, So I petitioned the archdiocese and got all these people to sign a petition and went to the Monsignor. My mother, of course, was mortified. Um, And I had no luck. But I I kind of – my rage came from that. Basically, it was my disdain of babysitting. I just wanted to make money. And altar boys seemed to make a lot of monies at weddings. So I used that as a propellant. And the excuse they gave me was, you can't be an altar boy because you're a girl and it's called altar boy. And even at 11, I thought, that seems like a fixable problem. You can just call it Alter Girl and then that's done. A couple of printing changes and you're good. So that sort of propelled me to become kind of, I guess, an activist. And then through my art, uh, I did – I had a very fun show on Comedy Central where I was the head writer on Mo Gaffney's show called Women Aloud where I did um, comedy and writing for her. Uh, I worked on John Stewart's syndicated show. Uh, I worked on The Man Show. I worked on – this was crazy. I actually produced... Man Show. That was some highbrow comedy. Highbrow comedy. And right before <laughs> I did the Man Show, I worked on the 25th anniversary of the Ms. Mag- magazine. and <clears throat> I worked on the 25th anniversary of the Ms. Foundation and Ms. Magazine and ended that on a Friday and started the Man Show on a Monday. And I thought, I am going to have my now card revoked. I'm convinced that is what's going to happen. Uh, but they used me as a barometer of how far can we push the comedy before the feminist slits our wrists. And, uh, have you been a barometer many times? I am a barometer often. <laughs> uh, I have a high tolerance. As long as it's funny and makes a point, I think you can say anything. But it has to make a point. So, um, yeah, and then um, Daily Show. Uh, I did a stint on Oxygen. Uh, I also launched Air America Radio and had a radio show uh for the first year there from 9 to noon with Chuck D and Rachel Maddow. So I've been crazy. Theater, stand-up, radio, TV, I try to do it all. And uh, you've got like three or four projects currently going on, don't you? I think I have four. (laughs) Uh, One is Shoot the Messenger, which is the theater project. Um, I'm doing a web 
a web series for Oxygen called Gift Intervention, which is really a little fun show that will be launching in early 2008, which is basically, in conceit, it looks like the Antiques Roadshow, but instead of bringing your prized possessions to have them assess for their value, people have gathered to show us the worst gift they've ever received and then in turn confront the person that gave it to them. Ooh. Haven't you all wanted to do that? Uh, yeah. Just once say, really, why? And why me? Because we've all gotten that gift. So I'm doing that. I'm doing a little rock show for Fuse. And then I, um, I have another project on hold because of the writer's strike, which is uh, the BBC is relaunching the classic uh, satire That Was the Week That Was uh, to revive it for 2008, and I'm going to develop that for them. Okay. So and then I think I sleep. <laughs> at some point in there. So with all these projects going on, what what was the impetus to jump into the lucrative world of underground theater in New York City? Clearly, <laughs> I'm a media whore. And I thought if I did a political cabaret on Monday nights in the basement of a Cajun restaurant in the East Village, that would propel me to the highest of heights. Obviously. What kind of a question is that? Do you do your research? Hello? Everyone knows theater is the launching pad to stardom. Uh, I, yes, I think Leo, Norbert Leo Butts just had a small part in the new, uh, in the new movie. <laughs> <laughs> Tony winner extraordinary star on Broadway. A little, little alternative part where uh, Dane Cook gets to sing over him. Oh, God. <laughs> it, you know, it, it, it just takes your heart a little bit. It kill, you die a little inside just hearing the words Dane Cook and Leonardo. Oh, boy. Um, I love the stage. Coming from stand-up, I love theater in general, and um, I really like ensemble work. And I wanted to do a show that because we're just living in a world that's so insane right now. And you look at the Daily Show, you look at Colbert, and they cover a piece of what's wrong with the media and how people get information in a satirical way. But for me, um, the biggest resource that people use to get their information are morning shows. Yes, as I said, this seems very much like uh, your attempt to do kind of the same thing for morning talk shows as, uh, you know, as the Daily Show does for television news and the Colbert Report does for Blowhard. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a good way of putting it. And because so much of your news division budget goes into these morning shows and they're on three, four hours a day and people wake up and they turn them on and that is where they get their information, um, I thought, wow, this is ripe for the pickings because it's three hours and now the Today Show is four hours of melded sort of information with, you know, it's like hair extensions and breast cancer. How are they connected? You know, it's like, what? They make up stories to fill time rather than assessing uh, kind of how long should the show be and how do we make it the best show possible? And so it just seems great because you just have all these people who wake up at two in the morning and cake on all that makeup and go out there with lip gloss and smile and um, start talking. And they spend so much time I think staying awake that they couldn't possibly do a good interview. <laughs> I think it has to be shallow because it's too early to be anything else. I, I, think, I think that's kind of their whole the whole network brass opinion of it is people just want something you know soothing comfort food like you know the equivalent of a television donut. Well, um. they, you know, and that's the thing about network brass. They never seem to actually ask people what they want. They make these bizarre decisions about people in the Midwest, and you know, I'm someone from the Midwest. 
And I never wanted that. Oddly enough, and neither did my other friends from the Midwest. It's sort of insulting because you do want to wake up. And if you're trying to get ready for work or you're a mom and you got two kids and you got to get them off to school and you have to get yourself to work and you've got to make lunches and all this stuff, it would be nice to be able to turn on the TV, have it in the background, and take in information that's going to actually help you make decisions about your family and your kids and you know, the minivan that the gas is now $3 a gallon and what we're going to do about that. But, oh, no, that's not the case. It's really about lip plumpers. Uh, and, and that's crazy because I think most women are like, I can find out about lip plumpers on my own. I have many resources. I can pick up a magazine. I can go into Victoria's Secret, slather a few on my mouth. I don't need four minutes on TV telling me how I should find it. <laughs> you know, so so through humor – Taking on their conventions and conceits, um, we try to make a point about um, the information we're given. Because we're only as smart as the information they let us in on. And if they're going to keep us dumb, then we need to hold them accountable for that. Now, the first half of the show is kind of like this this morning show parody, which I, I gathered from watching the show last night is basically half scripted, half improv, kind of a... Seems like it's not. It doesn't seem entirely improv. It seems like you have some sort of a, a guideline there, ready to go. The whole thing is scripted. Oh, yeah. so anything that seems like oh, and how do you feel and all that is literally written. So the conceit and the goal was to be just what you said to make it feel improvised, um, but it's all and that's a real craft to try to feel like it's coming off the top of your head and um, playing someone who is vapid and sort of trying to keep a show going, which is what my character is. She's sort of this cross between um, Elizabeth Hasselbeck and uh, Kathy Lee and just sort of all these morning show women put together. And so it's pretty hard to not comment on your character and to stay in that thing and to be incredibly um, not mean, but the world issues do never come into this person's sphere because they're so privileged that they kind of they know there's a war, but we you know we should win because we don't know those Iraqis. You know they know about certain things, but really they're not exposed to anything at all because they live in this world where people cart them around and they go to movie premieres and um, a limo takes them to their job and somebody washes their dogs for them and it's great. Why not? It's terrific. They want to know. They're concerned. But they don't really know what that means. So this is an all-new script every week. It's an all-new script every week. And I, there is a, sh- a shitload of people involved in this. There is a shitload <laughs> of people involved. And it amazes me um, how many people devote so much time. It is a collaboration of – I mean, I came up with the idea and then everybody came on board and – Everybody writes. Uh, everybody has an opportunity to perform. Uh, everybody edits. People go out and shoot. It's a multimedia thing, so people go out and shoot field pieces. Um, and it's a crazy brood of people who feel like this is an important show to do every week. You know, we're an all-volunteer army. Um, I try to feed people to keep them coming. That's sort of my thing. And, um, you know, there's a set of guidelines about your availability. You can always get actors in New York by giving them food. Yes, it is true. (laughs) (laughs) But it's really like like, there's certain guidelines people have to fulfill because not only do we want to do a show, but we want to do it well. And 
And uh, so people have to show up on certain days. And if they're not available those days, then they can't perform that week. Everybody has requirements to provide ideas for the show each week. And they post them up on our big uh, bulletin board that we have on Google. And, um, and then we go from there. And it's really great. So how crazy is the coordination of all, all – how many people are there working on the show all, all told? Well, now I think we're up to like 20, 20 people. Um, the, there's not a whole lot of coordination. It's There's a whole lot of throwing shit against the wall and sifting through it only because – That's even how Saturday Night Live does it, isn't it? Well, I think they do it and they do have somebody who actually prints the scripts, I think. Um, but, you know, that's the whole thing is that if this were a real TV show, we would actually have – some, you know, method to the madness. And so, and the goal is to, you know, get this up either as a bigger theater piece that's real or to, you know, to do it as a television show, um, which I actually have some competence at running. But with this, it's just a crazy train of how do you ask people to do so much work when you're not offering them compensation? And so you have to love doing it. And people's schedules vary, and they're going to their jobs so they can make money. So it's like, I'm available at this time, I'm available at this time. And so, you know, we're trying to work out sort of scheduling bugs and and the tasks. But on some level, the chaos is sort of part of the fun uh, because it really feels like, I hate Bush. I've got some curtains. You know, it's this kind of Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney satire thing that... um, You see, I I interpreted the show as a Bush love fest. Well, you know, (laughs) we appreciate what the president's trying to do. So that's good. He tries. He tries. He's adorable. He's a little (laughs) munchkin. Um, Yeah, so... You know, it's it just needs to, it just needs to be more stuff like this out there, and I think it's fun. And and people always say, oh, people don't want to hear satire; they won't come, but they do come. And you know, we're we're equal opportunity because there are no heroes right now. I I, I sort of equate the Democrats as being the doorman that's always sleeping at your apartment building, allowing every robber to come in, and the Republicans are the robbers. And so they go in and rob your house, and they walk back out, and the doorman Democrat is saying. Well, you kind of look like me. You don't seem like a bad guy. You probably should have that. I shouldn't have stopped you in the first place. You know, that's sort of what it's like. So, there, you know, we anybody who is just sort of a greedy and uses their power for evil, we like to take on through the course of the satire. So it's fun. So then the second half of the show, um, you have actually have a real honest-to-God interview with an interesting person. Yes, I take <laughs> off my wig, literally and figuratively, uh, and sit down and do a one-on-one interview. Because, you know, my theory is it's very... You know, it's all well and good to shit all over the media and to expose their um, laziness and their just sheer ridiculousness of how they prioritize what we should know. Uh, But in turn, there are people who do good work. And the frustrating part is that those people are so often you have to dig for them on blogs or you just don't see them very much. And so what I like to do is showcase them, have them come, tell us their stories, whether they're, uh, you know, people who are have really informative blogs, whether they're authors, um, get them to talk about real issues, get, get them to give some uh, action items, if you will, where to go, where to read, you know, places that you might not think. So that if you are a busy person, you can bookmark a really good website or write on your list of things you want to buy a really good book because sometimes it's really hard to dig for that stuff. And it's quite frankly, it's really sad we have to dig for that stuff. You know, we have to dig to find out the real information that's going to affect our lives, and yet we know literally the centimeter of the labia of Lindsay Lohan. And, and, and Britney Spears. 
Do we know hers too? Yeah, I know she, we know she, what it looks like. I wasn't sure if oh, anybody okay. did any measuring. I, I imagine somebody uh, did yeah. somewhere. Probably. That's right. The internal cavity <laughs> of a pop star is the priority and usually leads <laughs> a news story, which is so sad. Yeah. So it's good. So it's a fun balance of laughing, 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 and then talking to somebody in the second half where it's like, oh, that's cool. Great. I don't feel so hopeless. Not everyone in the media is a total raging dumb fuck. <laughs> Well, now for, you know, for some of our listeners who are actually more into participating in the creative process, I'm curious um, what kind of suggestions or advice you might have for aspiring writers uh, who are trying to break into, like, the comedy and satire field. Well, I think the good news is um, there is no – learn – there's a couple of things. Learn how to work a camera. Learn, how, learn basic editing because the Internet is your friend. There's no reason – and no excuse anymore to not get your work out there. There just isn't. With the internet and with all that stuff, you can really make make your make yourself shine. And so that's the good news. Whereas we us old fucks know, it used to be you were just so beholden to whoever was going to produce your work on stage or TV, and there was no outlet, and you were going up for auditions and. And, and it's just not the case anymore. There is this new medium. There's podcasts, like right now. You know, there's just all kinds of things. You have to be proactive. And I think it's kind of a cool thing in a way because it will separate those who want to be stars from those who want to be performers and writers. Uh, because those who really love performing and writing are thrilled about the internet because they can use it and they can do it. And those who use the arts as just a way to be a celebrity or think that being famous is some path, uh, they're going to get weeded out. And I think we should feel kind of psyched about that. Now, I assume that with all your projects and everything you've done over the years that you've been either in charge of or a part of hiring new writers. Yes. So uh, just on that level for people, I, they have to pay the dues and they definitely have to work a lot without getting paid. But how do they get found to get to get a job? Where uh, where do you find or on the teams you've been involved in? Where have you found the new blood? Well, I am personally working for me is uh, it's an interesting kind of thing because I started finding um, my writers just through stand ups and through uh, a lot of times disgruntled TV news producers who got out of the business because they were pretty disgusted. Um, they came in they and then usually through connections of theirs. I'm a big fan of hiring people over and over again. I like I like a team. I like to be able to bring people onto projects over and over. So, um, you know, the people I work with have suggested amazing people who have worked out really well. And if you trust the people that you work with, uh, then they can bring in other people who can fill voids. And so that's really um, – so get to know someone who knows me. And then, <laughs> then they'll bring you into the fold. But I think it's really about um, – it's tough because, you know, shows like The Daily Show and Colbert, you know, so many people want to write for those shows. And it's it's a really, really tough field. But it's deciding what you love and making yourself present in the communities where that's happening. You know, if you want to <clears> – <throat> You know, where do you suppose they're doing research, you know, and trying to write essays or blogs or, or video stuff, you know, signing up on MySpace to be part of, you know, Colbert's MySpace page and, and the Daily Show MySpace page and, and linking your, your site to those things so that people may, you know, click and see and know that that's what you're about. It's, it's a really hard road, but um, 
I think focus is key. What do you want to focus on and put yourself in the situations where like-minded people are going to be? You know, look, go to readings, go to things, see what people are doing. Because, um, you know, you can find little cracks in, but it's tough. All right. So now Shoot the messengers every Monday? It's every Monday. We take a break like every six weeks, but it's not like any kind of scheduled break. Um, but we do, you know, you can get on our mailing list by going to Shoot the Messenger NYC. And the NYC is important because if you go to Shoot the Messenger, I think you get a crazy Christian website. <laughs> um, so you want to go to ShootTheMessengerNYC.com. You can take a look at what we're doing there. We have video clips and stuff up. Yeah, there's a big multimedia yep. component on the Internet for those yeah. of our listeners who aren't in New York, too. Right? Yeah, and you can sign up uh, for the mailing list there. And we let you know when we're dark and what's coming up on the show and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's every Monday. Yeah, and I know we're going to put a couple uh, clips that you have on our, our new web player. In yes, the, that's fun. In we interviewed video. Roseanne. In, in, she came on the uh, the morning show's name is Wake Up World. Uh, my character's name is Hope John Paul. Uh, and so Roseanne was really funny because we just don't understand her activism-y stuff. It seems like a cult. We think <laughs> activists seem like culty. And they're not that cute. If you've ever seen those move on people, they have not met a shower in a long time. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty fun. And when people, you know, I just think it's great to become the people that you despise because it really holds up a mirror to everything. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Liz Winstead, I think it's time to wrap up. I know you got like 20 other interviews to run off to today. This one has been my favorite. <laughs> Well, it's nice, but it's uh, shootthemessengernyc.com yes. to find out all information and to view clips and, and such. It's at the Acme Underground Cabaret. Yes. And that is, uh, n what, number nine? Nine Great Jones, Jones between Broadway and Lafayette. 8 p.m. doors. And, and here's the good thing. It's only $10 and there's no drink minimum because... I was like... No drink minimum. How does anybody make new money in New York? Nobody makes any money. <laughs> and that's the other thing about it is that the whole point for me was keep it affordable no matter what. So if, if Roseanne is doing a show in a 100-seat theater or, you know, it's $10. And so it's... I just feel like theater has gotten so out of control money-wise, price-wise. It, it's I know you have to keep production costs going, but gosh, it's really tough to spit, you know, to go to a Broadway show, it's expensive. Go to an off-Broadway show, it's expensive. So to go to an off-off-Broadway, drunken, crazy political satire, it's only $10. <laughs> All right. Yes, I think anybody can afford that. Well, almost. <laughs> Still get all the cheapskates like me trying to get in for free. That's okay. <laughs> That's all right, cheapy. So, Liz Winstead, thank you so much. I wish you the best of luck. In Thanks the, for having me. I really appreciate it. Shoot the messengers to continuation and all your other various projects. Thank you. The Call Board. A film version of the Tony Award-winning musical Nine has been pushed back because of the strike in Hollywood. The film starring Javier Bardem as the leading man and to be directed by Rob Marshall is delayed because of the writer's strike. More strike news in L.A. But polishes are expected to be made to the script penned by Michael Tolkien by Anthony Minghella as soon as the strike is over. And the Yale Repertory has delayed the opening of the production of Moliere's Tartuffe due to the unfortunate death of a student during the show's load-in. Pierre Andrafe Salim, a graduate student working towards a master's in technical theater, was pinned against a wall by sheets of particle board, causing severe head trauma. Opening night has been shifted to the 2nd of December, with closing night still scheduled for December 22nd. 
Also, one show, Silence by the Ongoing Strike, will have its voice back on Thanksgiving Day. So if you listen to this quick, you can find out. MTV will re-air their recording of Legally Blonde the Musical twice on Thanksgiving Day with an added bonus. At the bottom of the screen, MTV will broadcast the lyrics for the song in the show. Get those Turkey Day sing-alongs ready. It's going to be an L of a Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah my... My intern wrote that. <laughs> All right, now this week, the call board is sponsored by the following show. Hey, oh, Earn your degree in hamburgerology at the hilarious new off-Broadway show, Minimum Wage, a witty, madcap, interactive, delightfully goony musical that is sung entirely a cappella with a talented cast of five, harmonizing, humming, belting, and beatboxing. Variety says legitimately kicks ass. Backstage says funny and brilliant. And NewYorkTheater.com says capable of following in the footsteps of Avenue Q, Urinetown, and the Putnam County Spelling Bee. It's a fun-filled evening sure to leave you with a song clogged in your heart and a smile lodged in your arteries. For $25 exclusive Broadway Bullet discount tickets, go to broadwayoffers.com and type in code MWEBLST or burgerboys.com. And don't miss their interview and exclusive in-studio performances from last episode, volume 135. It was a lot of fun. Also, the call board is sponsored by me. Uh, I have a recording studio here in Times Square, work with all styles and work really well with vocalists. If you know of somebody or you yourself are looking to do some recording, be sure to have them give me a buzz at 646-345-3433 to discuss their project or email me at info at broadwaybullet.com. I can work out a reasonably affordable solution to get a great sounding recording. And let's jump back into the program. On the boards. La Mama is known for their experimental brand of theater blending multimedia and music, but uh, it's rare that they do something that's a little bit more of a traditional musical, although the following musical subject matter certainly falls right in line with La Mama's theme. The show West Bank UK is coming to La Mama, and here with us we have dir director Oren Safdie, who was here with us in January, and uh, we also have actor Mike Masalam. How are you guys doing? Hi, very good. All right, so West Bank, UK, um, you summed up the premise so nicely, so I'll, I'll let you do that. Okay, of my <laughs> okay. Uh, West, West Bank, UK is somewhat of a musical allegory, and its uh, premise is somewhat of, uh, about a Palestinian and Israeli who are forced to share a run-down run rent-controlled apartment in the West Bank of London. And uh, it's set in London, uh, starts out that way, because in many ways before Israel became a country, Palestine was occupied by the British. So it's quite telling that the British landlord has died and her American daughter has come to take over the, <laughs> the building as the Americans inherited the mess. So This wouldn't have to be in London. I imagine two very diverse New Yorkers would get together for the right apartment. I suppose <laughs> it has that universal quality to it. It's also just about two roommates trying to get along. So there's the political element, but it's just about two people with differences, with relatives, with girlfriends, trying to make it work, and who are probably be friends under any other circumstances. And so, Mike, what's your, what's your role in this show? Uh, I play Aziz Hamoud, the uh, Palestinian role. Okay. <laughs> any, you want to tell us a little more, or does the name tell it all? Um, he's a... Uh, He's great. I think what Oren has done beautifully is sort of not taken one side, but uh, you, you get both perspectives pretty clearly throughout the piece, and uh, you, you sympathize definitely equally with both points of view. 
Now, Oren, what attracted you to this this piece? Uh, I think as as a book writer, there's a couple of things. One oh, that's was right. I, I announced she's a director. Oh yes, but I'm also a book writer a as book well. Writer. But uh, Ronnie and I had worked on two musicals previously, and then I had done uh, Private Jokes, Public Places at La Mama, and Ellen Stewart said that she didn't want any more plays from me with words in them. She wants, she likes to have music and multi uh, kind of different types of experimental work there. And um, I grew up a lot in Canada, but uh, my parents are both Israeli. And my father, in fact, is Sephardic, which means his uh, parents came from Syria. So a lot of my culture, I guess, is more Middle Eastern than what we would know here in America as Jewish Ashkenazi culture. And I remember in the summers, because I spent a lot of time in Jerusalem, there was, a, there was a period of time where we used to go a lot to the West Bank for lunch on the weekends, and there was, there was a lot of such hospitality that I experienced as a child from the Arab community. And it, it always seemed like the two people had more in common than what was tearing them apart. And I, and I somehow also remember something that triggered something for me was that I was in an airport in London and saw two flights leaving. One was going to Israel and one was going to Damascus. And you saw the two groups of people side by side. And I saw two people from each one kind of discussing. And it just sort of put that into perspective for me. And it's something that I wanted to write about but never thought of a way to do it, but through music, working with Ronnie, you can say certain things in music that I don't think you can really say in words. Yes, hip-hop definitely illustrates that. <laughs> that too. <laughs> so, uh, how, how long has this process been coming together? How long have, have you been writing on this? Um, probably on and off about a year and a half, two years. Ronnie and I uh, have not Got, done any before we started rehearsal process, we didn't do any readings of it, and we really kind no of readings. going shotgun. Go through the reading mill. <laughs> no readings, no workshops. We go shotgun. So sometimes you don't know what we have until you know opening night, which is exciting and terrifying. But it's uh, I think it's come together really good. Well, and I think you know our cast. I could not have asked for a better cast. It's really been fun, and I think everybody's in feel. It, it's funny because in, in, in rehearsal, it's not a political situation. Politics is, isn't even a part of the discussion. Um, yet on externally, it probably is to, to what people are going to come and see. But we're really focusing, and I'm trying to focus more on the psychology behind the characters. And I think it's important. You see so much political theater today where you see the writers point of view, trying to make his point of make his point of view come across. And I really think that's a mistake. I think I, I don't think that's just in political theater. I think a lot of films times... Films as well. For, for, well, just for new play... Not just, but not just political. I think a lot of problems with new playwrights or a lot of problems that playwrights stumble into frequently is is forgetting the character and the situation and the story and, and trying to push the, the agenda, so to speak, a little bit too much. Yeah. I think the the best metaphor I can think of is a referee in a hockey game. He's really doing his job if you don't know he's there, and that's the same with a, with a writer. I think you you shouldn't really know that the writer is there. You shouldn't shouldn't see a slate of hand. Now that's that's a little bit different for for your situation, Mike. Right. Because if they don't know you're there, there's, <laughs> there's but not I, much of a show. Right. I think Orrin is right, though. I think uh, what we've sort of been dealing a lot with is. Um, the heart of, of the matter and, and these two people as people and um, 
we haven't really we haven't really talked about the political aspect of of their backgrounds, but really about the situation at hand and you know how do how do two people from very different lives come together and live together peacefully? Now, um, I guess in terms of while you're playing this role in your kind of career acting in mm-hmm. New York. You know, one th- one thing that seems odd about New York is there's is such a melting pot of culture here, and, and this is, I think one thing great about La Mama because I think they're one of the few companies kind of regularly going after this. But overall, the theater scene can be pretty white bread. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it was it was great to see a sort of a, an Arab role, and Oren um, sort of pretty adamant about an Arab playing the role. I think um, you know these roles don't don't come along too often for us Arab actors. Um, but there's a community of us out there that uh, are trying to sort of pave the way, and there's great organizations in New York that are doing that as well. Now, I hate to sound like Rudy Giuliani and say post-9-11, but um, <laughs> I mean, I am curious from your perspective as an mm-hmm. actor. I, I imagine that you get, you get a lot of colorblind casting, so to speak, but has have things been different for you as an actor since 9-11 with people wondering if casting you makes a political statement? Yeah, I think, um, I, yes. Uh, I'm, I graduated college in May of 01 and moved here um, and worked on a tour and then moved officially to the city in uh, August 29th of 01. So I was here um, as an Arab uh, for about a week and a half before 9-11. <laughs> and then... Uh, Things, so you, you have, uh, don't have a lot of... I don't pre- have a lot of pre-9-11 <laughs> a- Arab actor experience. Um, but, um, but I, I you, you know, I think um, it, it has changed a lot. Uh, I think you sort of sect off into two branches, those who want to sort of pay the bills and make money and will play the... The, the commercial Hollywood terrorist number four roles and how many terrorists have you played none and I won't All right. I won't do it <laughs> uh, you know I, I won't I won't do it I can't um, I, I have a friend who we often have pretty heated debates because he thinks it's uh, essential to his career to grow a very long beard <laughs> a very Taliban-esque beard and he says it's the way he's going to pave his way into the business and and I think it's a cheap gimmick, and I won't. I won't do it. I'll rely on hopefully the training and the talent that I have, which he has. Oh, thanks, buddy. <laughs> Before I go further, I know um, Oren, you brought in uh, one of the songwriter demos. Uh, yes, for the show. And um, do you want to set up this first song we're going to play, or, uh, or Mike, or the, whoever? The first song, uh, "My Hometown," comes early in the play, and it sort of is about. In a sense, the songs somewhat take you out of the living room, the, the studio apartment setting, and they sing about what they're feeling. And this is this is really a duet. I think the recording is only Ronnie, the songwriter, singing. He might have a little bit help of something, but it's it's Asaf and Aziz singing almost at each other about their experiences, about their hometown. One is in the West Bank, and one is has grown up in Israel, and it's sort of their experience. All right, well, let's take a listen. Baladia, Baladi, Wanabidia, Rawak, Baladi, my hometown, my hometown, where the people fuck like rabbits. It's that refugee camp habit. Got to show the Jews how much we're. Tied to our despair My hometown 
my hometown How the smell of burning rubber And the frequent duck and cover Suck onions to fight tear gas Throw stones between soldiers' eyes My hometown My hometown Be like in shells the city buses Bitted men who are so fussy They slowly search for scraps of flesh As if they're private eyes My hometown My hometown We were born and bred for fighting It's not even that exciting Just as natural as a Russian Working girl in Tel Aviv Yes, there's checkpoints For our pleasure, who sends kids to die as martyrs? If you're dying, that adds pressure. Even 16-year-old daughters. The man won't let you through to see. We've got to build a wall. Your dear Aunt Engineer, so they can't come to Tel Aviv. You know what comes to mind? Muslim the Musical. No, uh-huh. no, yeah, I heard you talking about it while we were playing the song. And uh, so I'm, I'm curious why that came, came up conversation. Well, we were just uh, sort of what this show does that, that Oren has done very successfully is has written about the heart of a matter. And, I, and we had mentioned earlier that that sort of brings people in and into a situation that they might not be completely aware of or familiar with, and it allows them to participate in a way um, uh, of a matter of the heart. And um, Oren uh, sort of uh, got to hear a piece of um, a show that I worked on as a graduate thesis project called Muslim the Musical, which was my response as an Arab, in uh, an Arab-American in New York in a post-9-11 world. Um, and it's on YouTube. Yes, it's um, very funny. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You know, send me the link and we'll, we'll put a link to that up on our Sure. Oh, that's cool. Well. Thanks. <laughs> cool. So we got another song here from the show. Um, you want to set this next one up? Um, this one is... Uh, <laughs> there's a character who, it become, who is uh, Asaf's uh, blind date from uh, the internet, and she turns out to be a, a Gaza Strip uh, Jewish settler. So she's religious, um, but she, and she comes to visit him. And she has a take on how to get rid of Aziz from the apartment. And this is her uh, song called Force, which is about what she thinks how to deal with this problem. All right, let's take a listen. (laughs) You must show him you are strong. You must show him you got muscle. I've been around him for a long time. And I know that Arab hustle. Put a sack onto his head. That way you will earn his respect. Him by the testicles or twist his sweaty chicken neck. Make him stand out in the cold. 
Shove a hose into his nose He might scream but don't be sold Play it right, he'll kiss your toes You can light his beard on fire Do whatever you desire Tie him naked, shave his pubes Bring a broomstick and some lube Nothing works better than force A well-placed kick is ideal, of course him and call in the dogs A white shepherd give him pause Nothing worked better than force A bit of torture builds character A pool of urine, electric shocks A false confession really rocks So I guess it comes down to the big question is Is New York ready in post 9-11 with Giuliani stomping all around on television reminding everybody every five minutes <laughs> for this musical. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think yes. it's an equal opportunity offender and that's sort of how we get away with everything in this musical. I mean, it does take risks and uh, sometimes we're talking about things in rehearsal about, well, will some, this party be offended or that party be offended? But I, I find that in work, when you offend everybody, you're pretty much scotch-free. Scotch <laughs> so, but yeah. it, it also has a heart to it. And that's, that's, you know, these two characters and the chemistry between the two actors. Uh, the other actor is um, Jeremy Cohen. Um, it's really been something that I've, I, I didn't uh, expect because there's something going on in rehearsal, but there's something going on, I think, at another level. You know, I, I think another name we haven't mentioned is, is you know, very familiarly, you mentioned Ronnie, the composer, but I don't think we've said his full name. Or, yes, you know, I, you know Ronnie Cohen, uh, this is really, I think, a lot his showcase because the, the lyrics are just uh, so original and um, just different than anything I think most people would have heard. And and also his his melodies really stay in your head. Mm-hmm. They're not like so many musicals today where you'll listen to them once and you'll you'll really remember that song. And uh, Ronnie's making his way here. He teaches high school in uh, Palisades in Los Angeles and he's making his way here today. And um, we worked on two musicals together and he, we met at Columbia and he was in poetry and I think there's a poetic element to his lyrics as well. For sure. Right. And I think more than just New York is ready for this musical. I think it's a perspective that anybody who cares about uh, anything outside of themselves will sort of feel something here. So is La Mama ready for the next, oh my God, I'm going to say, you're in town? Okay. Is, every, is every small musical now the next year in town? Well, this is, this is a, the first step. <laughs> La Mama, I, I really love La Mama because it, it's a place where you can take that first step and feel like, well, you're not going straight to the, the big theater. And it's, you know, there's still the things that we're working out a little yeah. bit. But um, I think uh, this musical sort of crosses between La Mama and could be something commercial because there's a lot of comedy in, in it too. Mm-hmm. All right, so again, it's West Bank, UK, and it's playing at La Mama, and their website is lamama.org. And I take is that where they can go for a ticket link pretty easily? Yes, they can. And uh, Oren Safty and Mike Masalam. Perfect. Yeah, okay. I'm so glad you had the chance to stop in and talk about the show and your experiences and share some of the music from the show. And congrats to Ronnie Cohen, high school teacher, coming out to New York. Maybe <laughs> Thank you. Way. All right. Have, have fun. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thanks.
on the boards. Our next guest is a playwright and actor starring in his own one-man show at the 37 Arts Theater. And Bo Eason, you know, is a, a relative newcomer to theater, but I, I believe he has a rather extensive career in, in something else, uh, something called um, football. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. football. <laughs> What is football? I, 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 I think I'm one of the two guys in the United States who doesn't do Monday night football every. <laughs> yeah, I know. You and me both. Now that I'm involved in theater, I never see any football. So, but uh, you know, my, my upbringing was in was in athletics, and uh, you know, I played in high school and in college, and I ended up getting drafted to the Houston Oilers uh, after my college career, and and ended up playing pro football for five years. Uh, also, my brother played. He's uh, a year older than I. And uh, he played for eight years for the New England Patriots. He was the quarterback for them through the 80s and early 90s. Was and he bigger than you? He was bigger than me. He, is that why your show is called Run to the Living? That's, well, I'm the youngest <laughs> and I'm the youngest of six kids. So that – and it's based on a story that my dad told me when uh, – about the run to the litter. And uh, growing up, I was always the smallest in the family and the youngest and, you know, always trying to fit in somewhere and uh, – and so that's where we came up with the title. <laughs> so uh, what was the transition from w what made you as a football player go, you know, an off-Broadway show in New York City. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what I'm going to do. I know. Not a likely transition, is it? <laughs> Actually, it started way back, you know, when I was in grammar school and in high school. I was always interested in the theater. But I went to such a small – I grew up in a really small farm town up in Northern California and we didn't have enough kids to field a team, like a baseball team and a, and a basketball team and a football team. So all the boys had to play every sport because we didn't have enough, enough guys. But I was always interested in theater and whenever the school play would come up, I would always – go see it and, and want to be in it, but I couldn't be in it because we'd all, I'd always be playing a sport. And they, those two worlds just never, you know, just like much like today, I, I'm sure those worlds don't cross that much. Like the jocks don't hang out with the theater people and vice versa. Oh, there's a guy I hate in high school. You know, all us nerds get into theater to get girls because it's the one area we can. And, That's right. And then like my junior year, we had this our football star somehow managed to make the schedules work. Yeah. And, oh, God, I hated him. Yeah. He was a football star, and now he's, like, taking all the girls away from us. I know. What kind of guy theater. does that kind of thing? <laughs> 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 yeah, so it was a, you know, I mean, it was a, it was a natural transition. Once I finished, uh, actually, when I was in college, I majored in political science, but I minored in drama. And uh, even though I was a college football player, I would sneak over. I'd never tell any of my teammates. I would sneak over to the drama department, take the writing lessons, the acting lessons, all that stuff uh, to, to fill those requirements. But none of my teammates were the wiser. They didn't know that I was going over there and doing that. So once I got What in, might you have heard <laughs> in the locker room? Can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, we can only imagine. Right. Oh, what are you doing over there with that, those acting stuff? You know, I mean, I, 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 after, even when I was in the pros, I actually made it more known that I was taking uh, acting and writing during the off season during the pro when I was playing in Houston. And my the teammates were, you know, they tease you, they tease me, but for the most part, you know, they were pretty accepting because they thought, oh, that's pretty cool. You'd be, you know, you can be in movies and, and plays and stuff like that. But I tell you what, it was funny. After uh, my the last team that I played for was the San Francisco 49ers, and it was 1989. We had just the 49ers won the Super Bowl that year, 
So that was my final season. I had uh, a knee surgery that year, which was my seventh knee surgery. And I was running out of parts from this body to reconstruct these knees anymore. So they started to have to get screws and all kinds of stuff to hold these, these knees together. So I retired. Then I went straight into acting, and I started at the very bottom. I just I was in it was in Sacramento, uh, California, and I went and took a uh, an acting class from the junior college there. Yeah, an acting class at the junior college in Sacramento. That, that's that's <laughs> down near the bottom. I, uh, I'll get all the letters from the Sacramento. You know, not only that, the, <laughs> not only that, but the, they they had auditions for a play, and the play was. Gosh, I can't even remember the name of it, but it had something to do with a little elf town, you know, a town of little elves. And I auditioned for this play, and it was a children's theater, so it was going to be all kids. So I, I'm playing some part with a goofy hat and, you know, some kids. I've never been in a play in my life, but I really liked it, and I felt like, you know, this is just like athletics. I'm just going to start at the very bottom, and I'm going to work my way up. And so I did, and I'll never forget it because I'm doing this play in Sacramento, and it's all kids. And of course, the kids aren't even paying attention to me. They're like talking to each other. They're running around. Well, I had invited three of my teammates to come <laughs> to this play. So here you have these guys who are like 350 pounds. Did they fit in the seats? No. They had to take, <laughs> take up a whole row, these guys. And they sat in the very back so they didn't squash a kid. And after the play... I was really proud. I was really excited that I, I had my first play under the belt, under my belt. And my three teammates come down afterwards, and they, they're just shaking their heads and kind of just dropping their heads. And I'm like, guys, what would you guys think? You know, it's pretty good. I did a play. And they're like shaking their heads, and they just said, you know what, Bo? Six months ago, you were signing autographs on an NFL field. And now these three-year-olds don't even pay attention to you. Yeah, so it was. It was like I knew I had to start there, and that's what I did. And and from then it just you know kept growing and growing, and and I just kept training and, and trying to get better at at this thing because I knew that you know if I did train like I did as an athlete, I could really you know I could really get good given some time, given some years. And now it's been what sixteen, seventeen years. So now I'm you know I'm starting to get halfway decent at it. <laughs> now I guess to clarify. You said you were on the 49ers the year they won the Super Bowl? Yeah. So, I mean, you got the ring and everything? Yeah. You got it with you? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no. I said you were going to make it out of here. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> I know that thing would go on eBay for <laughs> Right. Um, so, what position did you play? In- I, I was a free safety, which is uh, plays on the defense. Okay, it's I, a defensive back. Okay, you lost me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I don't, I, but it, there are some listeners who might who might grasp this. Yeah, and if you uh, everyone pretty much everyone knows what the quarterback does. The the free safety is basically the quarterback of the defense. So you're pretty much running the defense, calling the plays making sure all your people in the right position to defend the uh, the offense. So that's that was my position. The position also, it's a fun position to play because you can be my size, you can be an average size guy, but you have to really be able to run. And you make a lot of tackles and you, and you can catch, you can intercept balls and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a, it's a fun position to play. <laughs> so what was the process? How long has Run to the Litter been in, in development? Run to the Litter. I started writing it in 1998, and I still have the book. I've, I've kept this book that I wrote. I wrote it longhand because I didn't, ha- I didn't own a computer at the time. So I just went to a library every day. 
uh, not a library, a bookstore, bo- uh, Barnes and Noble in West Hollywood. I would sit there for three hours because they gave you free parking for three hours if you bought a coffee or something. So I sat there for three hours every day for two years. And I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And I had never written anything before. You won the Super Bowl. You didn't have the money to buy a computer? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know if you know, I don't know if you remember this, but back in those days, players didn't, you know, you just didn't make the money these guys do today. Uh, someone told me the other day that if I was playing today, my salary would be between 5 and $6 million a year. And I was like, holy Toledo, you got to be kidding me. Because in the 80s, we're talking about, you know, a couple hundred thousand. That's how much you could wow. make. So it was much different world, obviously, then. So I had to save my money on the coffee and the uh, parking. Well, from my hometown, we have the notorious person. Perhaps you heard of Ryan Leaf. Yes. Yeah, he's from my hometown. Wait, are you? Where are you from? Great Falls, Montana. Oh, really? Yeah. I just saw his little brother uh, is the quarterback now for Oregon. Oh, really? I didn't, yeah. I didn't know the end of the. I just know that Ryan Leaf had you know this amazingly huge contract on the cover of every magazine and then proceeded to like fumble every yeah he had <laughs> it was made. he's he's really become famous or infamous i should say because of that uh you know his kind of downfall well uh, because he was so highly touted and then uh, everything kind of just the wheels just came off and nothing ever worked for him <laughs> well that wrestling you're hearing your, your pr guy just walked in the room all right charlie, charlie welcome hey there how are you man <laughs> Yeah, so that's like the, the, the one of the big things is we had like the big you know golden boy who's getting like twenty million dollars to play, and then well, this is the thing he was like an asshole. I mean, our, the, you know, he our city was all like proclaiming and all excited about this, and then uh, he graduated from CMR in in Great Falls, but he proceeded to make every reference that he thought Montana was a bunch of hicks, and he's he referred to Spokane, which I guess is where he went to college, more as his hometown, and oh, okay, pretty much yeah. dissed everything, and then. Uh, and yeah, and then the whole thing went south, and he was like such a shitty player, and yeah, <laughs> and then like something like he asked, or his parents asked for them to rename the gym after. <laughs> oh, they did. Oh yeah, the, the, the city. It was something like that. I remember the specific details. But. Yeah, I always feel for him now. I just saw him the other day. It was actually I was watching a, a ball game this past weekend. Oregon was playing somebody. Anyway, his little brother is the quarterback for Oregon, and Ryan Leaf was on the sideline. And so they kept showing him on the uh, on the telecast, and I just I kind of felt bad for him. It was kind of a sad case, uh, you know what's happened to him. He still's got a lot of money though. Or yeah, he does he? Does he? Well, you I know, I know, I know. He didn't. I know he blew a lot of his contract because some of the contract that twenty million or whatever was yeah. dependent on him. Yeah, doing certain achieving money. certain. But things. I imagine he still walked away with a couple million. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. And, and if he hadn't blown Montana, he could have lived for, like, you know, 100 years. That's right. That's true. <laughs> so back to Rent to the Litter. And uh, so you, you wrote it, coffee houses, uh, you know, free coffee. Since, yeah, free coffee. Part of, part of the football heyday. Yeah. Paychecks. And what was the process rounding up a producer and getting it getting it here in, in the 37 Arts Center in New York? Once I finished writing it, well, what I thought I was finished writing it after the two years and the three hours a day, um, I took an acting class and it was a, there was a teacher out in Los Angeles who was well known. His name's Larry Moss. And he has this great acting class. And all, a lot of my friends had taken his class and they were telling me about it. Hey, you got to get in this class. you got to get in this class. So I said, OK, OK, let me finish my script. And then what I'll do is I'll take in the first 10 minutes of my play, Run to the Litter, and I'll, I'll do it for him. Instead of doing a play from somebody that somebody else wrote, I'll do mine. 
So I did. I got in Larry Moss's class. I did the first 10 minutes of Run to the Litter. And after I was done, he just had this look on his face and kind of dropped his head and kind of shook his head. And he said, wow, that, that really – that's one of the most tragic things I've ever heard. And I didn't think it was tragic at all. I was – you know, I thought it was just like an uplifting great story. And uh, so Larry said, do you have a uh, script for that? And I said, yeah, I've got a whole script. He goes, can I read it? So I gave it to him the next day. He read it and then he called me and he said, come to my house. I want to, I want to sit down and talk about this. And so we did. And he said, I wanted to, he said, I wanted to direct this. And he had just been directing The Syringatree, which played here in New York for two years. It was a one-woman show with Pamela Gein, a great show about South Africa. And Larry developed that show in his class. And so Run to the Litter was his second project. He took that on. We started working about three hours a day every other day for the next year and a half after the two years of writing. And it was just Larry, myself, and my wife in this dark room in his little acting studio in, in Santa Monica. And we Don't worked. tell anybody I touched you there. <laughs> 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 and it was, it was great because we just worked it out and worked it out and worked it out. And then we started inviting friends. We said, listen, come in, you know, 30 people at a time. We'd feed him some food. We'd say, "What you know, listen to this play and see what you think about it. And people really started to respond. And then the movie people started to come. And these were just workshops. We weren't, we weren't selling tickets. We were just inviting people. And a guy named Frank Darabont came. He, Frank Darabont is the writer and director of The Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile. And he has a movie that opens, I think, tomorrow uh, called The Mist, which is a Stephen King, another Stephen King novel. Anyway, Frank, I, I loved the Shawshank Redemption. I loved the Green Mile. And Frank came and saw this and he said, man, this would make a great movie. I, wanna, I want this. So he had us take it over to Castle Rock Pictures and uh, I pitched – I basically did the play for Castle Rock and they bought it right there and uh, with Frank set to direct. So it was funny. We had a movie in place before the play had really ever been seen by the public. So then uh, my wife finally said, OK, Larry and Bo, you guys got to get out of this dark room. We've got to put this up in front of people. So she got us a date in Houston and we did it at Stages Repertory Theater. And that's where I played. So we thought that's kind of a built-in audience. That would be a great, nice place to open. So we opened there in 2000 or 2001 and we had a great run there. We went about you know eight, nine weeks. It was great. And then from there, we got the, uh, we got the New York opening. Uh, we had a couple producers. Uh, this was back in 2002. Manny Eisenberg and Ulu Grosbard saw it, or they actually heard about it through their agent in uh, L.A. They had seen one of those workshops. The agents called them here in New York, and they said, hey, we just saw this play. It's a one-man play, and you guys got to bring this thing to New York. So they called. We flew out here, my wife and I and Larry. We did the play in an office at ICM, which was no bigger than this little room I'm in here. <laughs> it was tiny little room, and there was, you know, th six people sitting there. And after they saw it, they said, "Okay." They shook our hands. They said, "We're bringing this to New York." So that that was our run at the MCC Theater in 2002. Then after we had a run there, we went back to LA and we started traveling around with the show, uh, doing it all over the country. And uh, and then these new uh, these producers who are who are producing it now, um, Tom Quinn is his name. He saw this in L.A. 
a couple of years ago. And he said, this thing needs a commercial run in New York. And we said, yeah, we, we think that's a great idea too because this thing can really, you know, people really respond to it. So anyway, for the last two years, he started raising money and uh, we started doing the play for certain um, uh, financial guys and boom, they wrote the checks and, and uh, it all happened really quick here right in the last couple of months. And we're here. Now we're at 37 Arts and we open, you know, on uh, December 1st. And op- I think opening night is either the 8th or the 9th. I'm not exactly sure. Maybe Charlie knows that. The 9th. The 9th. Thanks, Charlie. <laughs> the 9th. I, I, I guess I should know when the opening night is, right? <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's, that's how we got back here. I've done it in prisons. I've done it in juvenile <laughs> detention centers, on gymnasium floors where all the inmates are in their orange jumpsuits, like 250 of them on a gymnasium floor, uh, a cement gymnasium floor. And I've done it in, you know, inner city schools. I've done, you know, in offices. And it's, it's crazy the places I've been. So now that we're at 37 Arts, that theater is laid out perfectly for this play because this play takes place in the bowels of a stadium, places where people never get to go unless you have a secret pass, unless you're one of those players. And this player this this play is 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 predicated on this kid at nine years old drawing up with crayon and school paper, drawing up a twenty year plan. And when the play opens, you're in the last hour of that twenty year plan. And he's about to achieve it. He's about to make it come true. And that's what you're – as the audience, you're living it with him. You're going, oh, here we go. And you you go through those 20 years. The catch of it is to achieve this plan that he's dedicated his whole life to, he's going to basically have to destroy his brother to do it. And that's really the conundrum that he's in. So that that's how the play is set up and that's – you know, you'll find out what happens. All right. Yeah. Well, Bo Eason, uh, thanks for coming down and chatting. Run to the Litter, 37 Arts Center. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. Yeah, come see us. Thanks for joining us, Bo. Thanks, Michael. On the boards. If you're upset and missing shows because of the union strike on Broadway, perhaps you want to head north to Alaska. Well, to see dogs off Broadway, that is. And we have two of the actors with the production, Jennifer LaFleur and Ross Partridge here with us. How are you two doing? Good. Very well. How are you? Good. So, uh, dogs, Alaska. Uh, I'm, uh, at least Ross looks kind of scruffy, so I'm guessing <laughs> We're I'm guessing this is about like working working men in Alaska. And a, it's definitely a blue-collar type of play, no doubt. <laughs> um, it may not be the you know, most opportune thing to take a trip to Alaska in, in the cold as it's getting colder here, but uh, it'll, it'll warm you in a different way, I promise you. <laughs> So what's the show about? Let's start off with the basics. Uh, well, it takes place in, in uh, Valdez, Alaska, in a fish cannery town in summer of 1993, I believe. And it, it's basically a study about two brothers and what happens uh, with them individually and them as a as a relationship, you know, between them as a relationship when no fish come in and there's no opportunity and how do they create their own opportunity and where does their loyalty lie? Does it lie in what they want out of life, or does it lie between the two of them? It's also about the disparity of these two brothers who are from a, you know, a small town in, in Wisconsin and who the type of people that I think a, a fish cannery draws uh, for the summer work or for those who actually spend longer periods of time doing it. And uh, people who usually are, are tend to have a, a little less direction than others, let's just say. And... 
uh, how they kind of seek out any kind of, kind of opportunity in, in a situation where there pretty much is none and what will happen when that actually opportunity arises and who they'll cross in order to get something for themselves. So have you actually ever gone to work in Alaska for the... No. Um, no. no. But our playwright actually did. He did it one summer, so that's where the inspiration was drawn from for the play. You know, I mean, you know, when you're, I'm, you know, I live in Montana is where I, before I moved to New York, and, you know, I, I think every summer I thought about, wow, that's really an awful lot of money for just, like, cramming in for work for three months. <laughs> you know, there's actually... Now, now a, it seems like nothing, yeah. but when you're, when you're not... <laughs> Yeah, it does. I think making anything right after college. <laughs> sure, I mean, if you go right after college, it's a great idea. But we were watching the um, there's a um, orientation video, an orientation video of, of for the fish processing career, so to speak. And uh, I was actually just getting anxiety watching it, having just kind of sitting there and, and the orientation of you know you have different divisions in which you can work in the egg room, you can work in the on the docks and the fish line, gutting the fish. You could be a gutter, which is, you know, that's a great job. And you just basically, that's what you do. You just gut fish for 10 hours a day. And they pretty much prepare you that you could be on your feet for 10 to 12 hours a day. And you will not be doing anything but gutting fish. And you bring warm clothes and bring comfortable shoes. So it, it doesn't appeal to my senses now. But certainly I, I'm interested in playing a character that, that would take to do that, you know. <laughs> so you didn't have to gut fish 10 hours a day to study for... No. <laughs> no, no, no. I just had to watch the video. <laughs> He's going to eat a lot of fish instead. Yeah. So, Jennifer, what's your role in all this then? If it's a study of two men... Yeah, well, I, whenever there's two men, you got to have a lady, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm the chick who comes between them. Um, I become involved with one of the brothers, and that's where a lot of the questioning of the loyalty and and obedience uh, kind of comes in. Um, we try to train her like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the title. Hence the title. <laughs> no, she's just a, you know. In fact, she, she's actually like another one of these characters who who and I'll speak for you. Okay. Remember, yeah. Sure. Go ahead. Um, who again is kind of lost in direction. She takes to other kind of things and devices, whether it be men or drinking or drugs and so forth and so on. And, and she, again, takes these two brothers and sides them against each other in, in a sort of way in order to get uh, an opportunity out of them as well. So, somehow uh, an idea or an opportunity just to get the hell out of this small little... In, this little town. Yeah. She's kind of like tofu. She takes on the flavor of wherever she is. <laughs> Whatever guy she's after, that's that's who she becomes. Uh, now, this is a production for the Grid Theater. Yes. And uh, I understand you're, you're involved with the Grid Theater as well. I am. I am. I started the Grid Theater with the artistic director, Justin Ball, a couple years ago. Um, we just, you know, met for lunch about a script for a play that he, that I had actually given to him. And after about four hours, we had decided to create a theater company because our, our artistic visions really lined up with each other. So the first play that we did was Things Beyond Our Control with Jesse Kellerman, and Ross was actually in that as well. And then uh, Justin went on to direct a show that went to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. So this is our third production now. And what drew you to this piece? How did you find it? How did the, how did this come to your attention? Norman Laska got his uh, MFA from Brandeis, which is also where I got my MFA. So we knew each other there, 
and I've always really admired his writing and think that he's just has has a great style and sensibility for characters and for drawing out worlds. And he gave me this script shortly after we did Things Beyond Our Control. It was the first script I read after finishing that production. And then after that, we read about 70 or 80 other plays and came back to Dogs, which was the very first one that we read, and just felt like we really connected to it. And we did a reading, and we brought in Joshua Leonard to do a reading, and it just felt like it clicked, and we went ahead and did it. It was also one of those things after doing Things Beyond Our Control, which was a larger cast of about seven or, I think it was eight people, actually. Um, You get to a certain point where you realize that producing theater, how hard it may be in in New York, that sometimes you want something that's a little easier to maintain and stories that are a little bit smaller, which uh, Things Beyond Our Control is a much bigger piece and it incorporated a lot of different characters in in one world and in a lot of worlds within that world. And we felt like to do something that was a little bit... uh, a little more um, concentrated, concentrated, and a little more—I um, don't know, like like home, I guess, if it's so, so to speak. Something that just uh, you can relate to on a much more intimate level. So, um, dogs obviously appealed to us for, for the reason of that there was only three characters, but also within the story itself, it was—it's a very small kind of unique story. Now, I understand that uh, besides the. The Grid Theater, you guys both are keeping rather busy as actors lately. We try. We try. <laughs> what, what are some of the other projects you've been working on, both on stage and off? Um, well, on stage is, is dogs. Off stage, um, I, I work on a soap opera, and I started... Um, Do work- they train you in the freeze cam? <laughs> the freeze cam. Yeah, that's what I call it. You know, the, that long, yeah, at the, the end long, of every scene, the long yes. look where you have to hold. The yes. I'm going to tell them the two different takes. <laughs> oh, well, there's, there's actually three different three different oh, takes. Yeah, I, and I, I stole this from somebody. But there's this this guy, he says, you know, there's three looks for the end of a scene where you have to kind of hold your face. And the first one is, did I leave the, did I leave the stove on? And the second one is, I did. I did leave the stove on. <laughs> and the third one is, no. I turned the stove off. <laughs> yeah. So yes, I work very hard at you know, and I and I do a lot of the method. I leave my stove on and leave the apartment. How does that make me feel? It's really it's very challenging work. Um, we shouldn't be making fun of it, though. It's not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> she'll, she'll be getting into you, work tomorrow with a pink slip. <laughs> you can edit this show, correct? You didn't say what soap it was yet, though, so... Uh, <laughs> um, but, I mean, a big thing that's coming up next year, in, in January probably, um, is the film Baghead that we were both in. Ross is the lead, um, and it's directed by the Duplass brothers, who we adore and think are just fabulous and amazing and just so talented. They had a film, uh, it was called The Buffy Chair, that was out uh, two years ago. Um, so this is their follow-up film. and hoping for good things with it and we submitted to Sundance so we're just kind of waiting to hear so uh, Ross Partridge how often do you get asked if you were upset being you know not let into the band (laughs) you know every time somebody (laughs) asks me that I always think wow this is probably going to be the last time that that happens (laughs) and yet again I was proven wrong Um, well I don't get that upset it seems like you have to you were around that era too I I completely was I actually grew up watching the Partridge family and it didn't seem like I, I made any connection to it and in fact I made such a stronger connection to the Brady Bunch, and I, and when people have a name like Brady, nobody says, mm, 
you know, did you know that your name was Brady? <laughs> <laughs> the cartridge, it just sticks because, you know, there's a bus. I think that's what has to be. <laughs> it's all bus. about the bus. It's about the bus. <laughs> so. so what else is on the horizon besides the film and the, and the show that's going on? Anything? Um, Anything? I just started doing this this web series called Shoe Tube. It's all about women's shoes. That's that's it. Just shoes. And I'm guessing Shoe Tube is on YouTube. <laughs> no, it's 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 no? Shoe TV, <laughs> and it, it'll launch soon. We we've started doing the pilot, and you know I just go out on the street and accost people and look at their shoes and interview designers and talk about what the trends are and whatnot. Now, has this, sh- uh, has this show opened yet? Or No, it hasn't. It opens December 6th, and it runs through December 22nd. So you don't know if this is going to be like the halo effect of the strike. Is the strike going to still be going? I don't know. Are people rushing desperately to off-Broadway theater? <laughs> we would love that. We would love that. Shouldn't they be anyway? <laughs> well, we're, we're right on East 4th Street, so it's kind of like a little theater row down there. We're right across from New York Theater Workshop and Next to Little Mama, and it's it's perfect. So we're at the Duo Theater um, on, on East 4th, so it's a great location. So if people want to go find theater, that's a good place to go. It's a great theater that they renovated and it actually used to be the uh, screening series uh, where where Andy Warhol held his screening series back in, you know, I guess it was like the early 70s. Um, they also filmed um, part of the Godfather. One of the there. scenes in The Godfather was where they filmed. They have these big, huge Baroque paintings, and it's just this kind of. It's an amazing old really theater yeah. from the 1800s. It's like a mini Broadway house, basically, with a proscenium stage and the painted murals. It's just a stunning space that we fell upon when we were looking for a theater. And they, the Duo Theater Company uh, paid $1 for the space from the city in return, have renovated it really beautifully. So yeah. we're excited to have it. Yeah, you that know, doesn't happen one dollar for real estate. Yeah, and that's <laughs> actually, you know, and the city's right now probably feeling like the Native American. <laughs> like yeah. beads too. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So the show is Dogs. Uh, GridTheater.com. Yeah, come mm-hmm. come check it out. It, it, it's going to be a show. And, uh, and the other cast member, Josh, when, when he wanted to be here today. Yeah, he was supposed to be here early. He was sick, and when there's a cast of three people, it's, it's usually if, if one of them two weeks before a show is getting really sick, then we try to stay away. As much as we <laughs> and, uh, I'm guessing you don't have a gang of understudies running. Um, I'm his understudy. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to grow my beard out. <laughs> All right, Jennifer LaFleur and Ross Partridge, I thank you so much for coming down and talking about dogs, and uh, have fun in Alaska. Thank Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. All right, remember, the show isn't over. In Act 2, we got some great interviews and performances. We've got Flanagan's Wake and Scott Allen talking about his new CD, Dreaming Wide Awake, both with some exclusive live performances in the studio. And we have also got the new experimental show off-Broadway, No Dice. A couple people were wondering, how do you get the B-side? Okay, this is the thing. iTunes, if you're subscribing there, uh, by default, it only downloads the most recent episode, which means Act 1. So there's a couple ways. You can just go to the iTunes store and hit the Get button for Act 2. Also, if you go to your subscriptions list, which is the top left-hand corner of iTunes, uh, before you get in the store, just where it says Podcasts, and it shows the podcast you've been subscribed to, if you drop down the list, it shows every show we have ever released. Um, and then you can manually hit uh, get there as well to get Act 2. 
The other option is to select an iTunes, download every show, which if you don't have the whole library backed up, can be a little time-consuming because it will download all our shows, but in the future it will make sure it downloads both episodes automatically to your things. There's a couple solutions if you're wondering how to get at that. So uh, take a break, get a stretcher, have some candy, and join me back for Act 2. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And, if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career. <laughs> 